Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Go. So, my guest today is Matt Dixon, and what are we going to talk about today? Uh, about uh, so I've been a military historian for uh, many many years. I've been a battlefield guide, and I specialise in the battles of the First World War. I've, I actually run my own podcast as well, where I talk about my memories and my reflections on thirty odd years of walking and visiting the battlefields and cemeteries and memorials of the First World War. So thank you very much for asking me to come and join you. It's a pleasure to be here this afternoon. It's a pleasure to have you. And I also asked you in the beginning. What was that? Where did the interest in this come from? So I think, like uh, many people, the interest really came from my father because it's something that he's always been particularly interested. He served in the military and was particularly interested in First World War history. So he had a very extensive collection of books. And I remember when I was very young, um, looking at the sort of some of the pictures in the books and things like that, and having this sort of slightly appalled fascination with some of the images of of the first world war battlefields and and that sort of thing and um my first kind of real experience of it came when i was probably about i don't know maybe 10 or 11 years old i can't remember exactly but we had been on holiday in france and my father's usually impeccable timing had uh, let him down and we were about two hours ahead of where we needed to be and of course this was before the days that anyone had smartphones to be able to get online and change your ferry booking and, and that sort of thing so you just had to stick with what you had so we um I remember pulling off the motorway and uh, my father said oh we'll 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 just do a quick visit and I'll, I'll come and show you something and we stopped at a Commonwealth Wargrave Cemetery and that was at um, the bottom of Vimy Ridge it was Canadian Cemetery number two and I can still remember it to this day and that was the first Commonwealth War Cemetery that I visited and I, I was absolutely I remember being absolutely transfixed by not just the number of headstones there but it was so beautiful as well so beautifully maintained and the flowers were incredible and that was it and I've been uh, I've been kind of hooked ever since so I, I hold my father entirely responsible for um for for my interest so I understand you're writing a book at the moment about this and what can I tell me a little bit about what you're writing in the book the moment will come out yeah, so um, I've been working with a, um, a a good friend of mine by the name of Simon, who uh, actually is a, is a history teacher. And um, the, the first book, really, it came about because um, I 
back in the early 2000s, I think it's about 2001, something like that, I had um, actually broken my leg and was off work. And um, one of the things that I was doing was I was looking on the internet at uh, various sites about war memorials and things like that. And I um, wondered whether my old school actually had a war memorial. I'm, I'm ashamed to admit that when I was a pupil there, I'd never really paid much attention to, to this sort of thing, which uh, I, I probably should have done. And uh, it turned out they did, and no one had ever really done a sort of research project on it. So I decided to take that on, and um, I researched the the names on the school war memorial, and uh, at a later date, Simon became involved in it, and um, we've published that book that's due to come out hopefully I think at the end of this year it's just uh, the final editing has been done and proofreading and that sort of thing and um, I'm currently working on a proposal for a second book uh, which is going to be about the Battle of Festubert which took place in May 1915 and it's something that's never ever had a in-depth study of it uh, written. In fact, when you look at things like the official history and things like that, it barely gets a mention in it. And I, and I think that's something of an injustice to, to the 16,000 odd men who lost their lives there. And it's somewhere that's always been particular interest to me. I, I don't know why, especially I didn't have any family who fought there. I didn't have any relatives who fought there, but it's always, I think, I think you've, in life you always find a certain place or a certain thing that for some reason really grabs your interest and for me it was the the battle of festubert so i mean the process of uh of starting to write the first real in-depth study as to as to what happened and i i was beginning with what is it like to walk the battlefields of world war one what is the feeling when is it as exciting every time you walk there or is there is there something new feeling uh, absolutely it's um it's a very it's a very difficult thing to explain what the appeal of it is um because it's quite strange when you think about it i i drive to the channel i go across channel and then i spend a day walking around looking at war cemeteries and and it's quite sort of difficult to explain what the appeal of it is but i think the cemeteries themselves are the most tangible reminder of the first world war because of course there's very little if anything of the battlefields left for us to see as they were during the war. Of course, the, the locations are still there, but there's nothing, you know, there's no trenches or anything like that left for us to see. So the cemeteries are sort of the real tangible connection with the past. And for me, it's always an incredibly moving experience. And I, I remember very clearly that I'd been visiting the battlefield for, for many years and I was sitting having my lunch one um, afternoon by a very small cemetery up in Belgium and uh, like all of the war cemeteries it was immaculately maintained it was absolutely beautiful and it made me realise all of a sudden that actually these are not just graves they're not just names on a grave that every single person in here is somebody's son it's someone's brother someone's father someone's uncle and it, it was quite a profound experience and since then it's changed my perspective on visiting the battlefields very much that you see beyond just the rows of graves and that every single name on a headstone is a story waiting to be told and and it's a representation of somebody's grief and I think you need to 
remember that when you are looking at these at these these cemeteries and look beyond the names and for me it is it's, it's quite hard to explain but it's the place where I am most at peace with myself mm. is when I'm visiting the the battlefields of the first world war um, I think it's because it's been such a passion for so long um, but I really feel that there's there's a connection that keeps dragging me back there time and time and time again. In fact, since COVID came along, since lockdown, this is the longest I've been without visiting the battlefields. I think probably since about the age of ten. Mm. So, do you picture the fight that happened when you worked there? When you, you picture the trenches and the people who fought, what they were, maybe what they were saying, what they were shouting, and the guns and explosions. I think it's um I, I, I think one of the problems that you you get with visiting the the, the the battlefields as they are now is that they they're not representative of what mm. they were like at the time. But you still manage to see the battle for in your head, like you know what I mean. Yes, uh, very much so. I mean, there's been some um, marvelous advances in technology that have been fantastic for battlefield visitors over the last few years. So there's now. Um, GPS devices that will plot your current position on top of original trench maps. So you can actually see where the lines ran from exactly where you are um, and that sort of thing. And I think you do get a sense that there is something happened here. And I think that happens certainly in some places perhaps more than others there's um there's a couple of places that, that i've visited that i always get a real you get a real atmosphere in the location and you can feel that something happened here one of those places for me is um a small wood down on the somme called trones wood um and it's a place where for me i think the the dead rest uneasy. You can just feel that there is an atmosphere there. It's very difficult to explain without actually being there, but you can just sense that this is a, a very melancholy place and, and something happened. And I also get that very much at a, a place called Polygon Wood up in Belgium near Ypres, which is um, it's very dark and very foreboding. And you can tell that during the time when there was fighting going on here, it must have been a truly ghastly place to be. And I think you still get that feeling today. Do you think that people are in that area is aware of what is that it actually was a battle? I mean, there must be, but like, you think that they are kind of aware that it was a battle here going on hundreds years, over a hundred years ago? Yes, I, I think very much so, and I think those um, those areas of France and Belgium that were heavily involved in the fighting are are even to this day extremely you know recognizing of what happened and what went on there I and mean, i think you only have to look really at the the ceremony that takes place under the menin gate every single evening uh where the traffic is stopped and the buglers of the fire service play the last post every night um that that still happens today because there is a, a real sense of um remembrance and commitment to ensuring that the memory doesn't forget it doesn't fade excuse me about of those those men who died there so yes i, th I think people are very uh, aware of the the situation and of course i think one of the things as well that you you need to 
think about is that the large tracts of what was the Western Front are now given over to agriculture, um, you know, as they were sort of before the war started. And, and it's very, very common that um, farmers are still ploughing up munitions and shells and barbed wire and, you know, the, the detritus of war uh, is still ever present. And, and, you know, if you walk around the battlefields, it's very, very common to find artefacts lying around that have come up through through ploughing or just yeah, artillery shells just lying at the edges of fields that the farmers have ploughed up. So, yeah, it's kind of omnipresent, really, the, the, these reminders of the First World War. Whilst we might not be able to visualise it exactly as it was, the, the reminders are definitely still there. Do you, do you look at footages from, like, uh, you know, old footage like you know, on YouTube or stuff like that, and you, you go to the location and you... There's, as I asked, kind of similar question, but do you manage to see better after watching the footage and then actually go to that place after? Yes, I think it adds a very different perspective to it. I, I think the most famous place anywhere on the Western Front where it's possible to do that is... Um, it's a place called the Sunken Lane, which is just down near the small French village of beaumont hamel on the Somme. And there was a very famous piece of footage was taken by uh, the official cameraman on the first day of the Battle of the Somme. And it was men of the Lancashire Fusiliers who were sitting in this sunken lane and um, were waiting to go over the top. And one of them is, is looking at the camera in, in a very enigmatic sort of way. It's a very famous photograph, actually, of, of, of the First World War. And the sunken lane is still there, and it's possible to, to identify almost exactly where this man was sitting when this famous footage was taken. And that's an incredibly emotive thing to do because it really brings it to life. Um, and I, I think contemporary photographs are very, very useful for giving you some visualization. Yeah, it's, it's it's to give you a perspective of what it looked like because, of course, there's 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 practically nothing left for us to see in terms of the way it is now because land has been reclaimed. So yeah, it's it's a very useful tool to have, definitely. So do you go around in metal detectors trying to find stuff from the war? What, what, is, what exactly is your job when you walk to the battlefield? Is it a report back to, back to your headquarters or is it, what, what, do you, what is your job when you walk? Well, uh, met, met, metal detecting on the battlefield is, is illegal on both in both France and Belgium. So, um, I mean, I have no doubt that it does happen, but uh, it's certainly not something that, that I would do. I, when I'm when I'm out there, um, obviously, one of the things that I do is, is I work as a genealogist. So I research soldiers histories for people um so if you someone knows that they had a relative who served in the first world war one of the things i can do is i can help track where they were what they did and obviously if they lost their lives where are they buried or, or where are they commemorated um and when i am tour you know battlefield guiding people around the battlefields it's really a case of um I guess it really depends on what their knowledge and what their experience of visiting the battlefield is like before. If, if someone has never been to Ypres, say, for example, there are certain kind of key sites that you really want to take people to, to give them a, 
a flavour of the of the battlefield around Ypres and some of some of the most important monuments and cemeteries and and things like that. So it really depends on the clients as to what they want to get out of it. Some of my clients want to follow the footsteps of, of Grandpa. Um, they want to know you know where he was, what with his regiment, what he did. Um, other people would just like a, a general introduction or a general overview of the battlefield, and and it both are both are equally welcome. And um, of course, unfortunately, we don't have many alive today. It's been almost 100 years ago. But have you ever met any veterans yourself from I, the I, war? I have. Um, I was, what was uh, that like? Well, uh, the, excuse me. Um, it was it was very. Um, it was a very, it was a very strange experience um, to meet because they were extremely elderly gentlemen at, at, at the time when I when I met them and um, I wish now with hindsight that I'd taken more of an effort to sort of you know maybe record the stories or, or something like that and um, for for posterity but I think there was a a sort of real sense when you talk to veterans that they were just in their minds I think they were doing their bit there was a sort of stoical acceptance that it was it was a necessary part of 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 life at that time of growing up at that time and um i think there was also a a genuine sense of sadness from them about you know friends that never came home and and maybe some of the sights that they saw and the memories that they had well were they emotional talking about it or were they just eager to talk about to tell this story I think it varies. Some were more keen than others, um, and I think sometimes you have to um, you have to wonder whether there's a little bit of dramatic license in what you're being told by these uh, these old old chaps who uh, you know whether there's a, a certain degree of embellishment perhaps about some of the things they may have seen or some of the things that they may have done. But uh, the most part, the, the the veterans that I was fortunate enough to meet were all very willing to talk about their experiences up to a point. Uh, but you could tell with all of them that there were certain things, there were certain memories that even after 60, 70 years after the, the war had finished was still painful and, and was still um, not particularly things perhaps that they wanted to dwell on. So you mentioned the battle that you wanted to write about. Can you tell us a little bit about this battle? We should, of course, have this as an episode, but can you just give us a little bit of insight what this battle was about? I forget the name that you um, said, but... Could you talk a little bit about this battle? Yeah, uh, for Festubert. Yeah, Festubert. Yeah, so so Festubert is, is a very small village uh, which is located up in the the Artois region of uh, northern France, and it was the third of a series of battles that were being fought by the the British and the French in Artois in early 1915. The the first offensive was the Battle of Neuve-Chapelle in, 19, uh, in March 1915 and then there was fighting at Aubert's Ridge at the beginning of May 1915 and then the following week there was the Battle of Festubert and then in September there was the Battle of Luce, all of which were fought in a, in a very small area in terms of square mileage of, um, of battlefield. And it was really a case that the, the, the British were stuck in a very difficult situation because they were very much the junior partners to the French army. And there was a, 
a real sense of pressure on British command to be shown to be supporting the French, even though that they were really sort of militarily not in a position to be able to do so. The British certainly weren't, um, I think most of the belligerents actually were not prepared for the type of war that the, that the First World War had become. And the losses suffered by the British in the first sort of five months of the war were absolutely catastrophic. So when it came to the spring of 1915, what they found themselves was chronically short of trained soldiers, chronically short of officers, chronically short of equipment, ammunition, um, etc. But under great moral and political pressure to be seen to be helping France as part of their you know the sort of the, the pre-war agreement that they'd made and the, the French were very keen to uh, launch a series of offensives in Artois because if you could break the line at Artois it would open up uh, the road to Lille and Lens and the transport hubs that the Germans used in in both of those towns um, so there was fighting, as I said, at, at Neuve-Chapelle in, in March 1915, which was a, a, a disaster for, for the British. There was fighting at Obez Ridge, which once again was a, a catastrophe. And then there was fighting literally the week after Obez Ridge at Festubert, which uh, the offensive went on for, for about 10 days. It cost the British about 16,000 casualties in total, and they gained practically nothing in terms of in terms of actual, you know, there was no strategic or tactical gains that were made, but a, a huge loss of life. And the, the lines remained very firmly in German hands. And in fact, they were to remain in German hands really right through until the spring of 1917, when um, there was there was finally some success at the beginning of the Battle of Arras. And uh, what was the effect of the, this battle? Was this a German victory? Was this an ally victory? Uh, well, it depends really, I suppose, on how you define victory. In terms of casualties and uh, ground gain, then absolutely the, the Germans came out far better from it. It was, a, it was a fairly pointless exercise, really, on the part of the British, because there was no real tactical or strategic reason to try and take Festubert, other than trying to perhaps shorten the line that they had to hold. But it, it really was a case of um, British command sort of being backed into a corner and, and having to be seen to be doing something. The, the problem that the, the British had was that they were started 1915 and they were already short of ammunition. And then in around about sort of March 1915, April 1915, there was the Gallipoli campaign took place. So the British opened another front and this diverted desperately needed men and equipment from France and Belgium over to Turkey. So from starting in a bad position, they were put into an even worse position and then expected to make the best of the situation that they could. And I think when you look at it, perhaps from that perspective, it was almost inevitable what was going to happen in terms of the, the, the losses and the casualties and, and the actual lack of anything tangible coming out of this. Uh, forgive me if I asked, you answered this before, but have you visited the place yourself, the battlefield? I have, yes. It's it's somewhere that I go um, a, a, an awful lot, and it's somewhere that I've walked very much. And I think walking the battlefield is, is, if you want to understand a battlefield, you can, of course, you can read about it in a book, and you can, you know, look at pictures on the internet, and you can drive 
around a battlefield on, on in the car. But if you want to truly, truly understand what a battlefield is like, you have to walk it because it's only by walking it that you appreciate the, the, the very subtle changes in gradient that, that are not apparent when you're driving, but actually give all the advantage to the to, to the defender. And that was very much the case at Festibear. The, the, the problem with the battlefield at Festibear from the point of view of, of attacking infantry is that it is pancake flat. There is no cover at all. And there are very small changes in gradient um, as you move away from Festibear. And of course, as was pretty much the case along the whole of the Western Front, the Germans held what high ground there was and it gave them an enormous advantage when you had it's over allies out of the high ground sorry say again it's over allies out of the high ground yeah absolutely absolutely um but but i think there are very few parts of the the western front where the advantage of having what limited high ground there are, are as apparent as those on the battlefields of Artois because it, it is absolutely pancake flat there. And um, it, the, the battlefield as well at Festival was it was bisected by a large number of very wide drainage ditches which had to be crossed by attacking troops. And of course the Germans knew it was there, knew they were there. So every gap in the, the barbed wire that was made, they just trained a machine gun on it. And as soon as anyone appeared, you just mowed them down. Um, so, so the British were, were in a really difficult situation from the prospect of attacking um, the German line. So the other problem they had as well is that the water table in that particular area is so high that you couldn't, you couldn't dig trenches because as soon as you went about half a meter down they just flooded and filled with water so the defenses in this part of um of Ottawa were what were called breastworks so they were built with uh, sandbag barriers uh, earth barricades that sort of thing and when you look at contemporary pictures of the german defenses you can see these are built for the long term this isn't something that's just been just been put up um you know uh, ad hoc these are these are solid, rigid constructions that are designed to be there for a long, long time. And the prospect of attacking that, it's absolute madness. And when you stand on a battlefield and you use, say, for example, the GPS technology, you can stand on what the top of what was the German front line and you can get a German machine gunner's view as to what they would have seen of infantry advancing across these pancake flat fields and it gives you an absolute understanding of what complete madness it must have been and, and what a horrifying prospect for those soldiers that were being tasked to just walk across flat fields towards well-sighted and well-defended german positions it's just madness now you mentioned that the germans had a high ground and we talked we talked in a different episode a few few episodes ago about the battle of stittgenstein how they had the high, they had a high ground, but the sunlight and the sunlight reflecting down on, on them that it was a disadvantage, disadvantage with the sun. Was this an issue in this case, or was the, that the sun was because of the high ground that the sun, they had the advantage of the sun? I don't remember how it goes, but was the sun it, a problem that it reflected it, back? It's not something that I've ever heard uh, talked about in terms of sort of any of the, the official histories or, or anything like that. Uh, I mean, I should imagine, of course, that it it would perhaps present problems for for 
attacking infantry if they were coming from the west which obviously the, the the british were towards the east in terms of sunrise and that sort of thing but it's not something that i've heard in any any sort of particularly contemporary accounts or anything like that no so you you talked a little bit again you talked a little bit about this earlier but how computer technology helped you identify where the trenches were but how how else does computer and gps technology helped help out finding out more about how the battlefield worked out and try to tell me a little bit about this. Yeah, I mean, I think that I think the advantage in technology that have um, sort of come over the last, you know, 10 years or so, particularly with the, the growing use of mobile phones and, and things like that is it, it certainly changes the um, your understanding of visiting the battlefield, because obviously not only can you combine GPS technology, but you can also combine something sort of, you know, Google Earth and things like that. You can actually look from above. And of course, there are many features that may not be apparent when you're actually standing on the ground. But when you look at from above, you can certainly see, um, particularly when fields have been ploughed, you can see trench lines that run through chalkland or things like that. So you can see white lines going across the fields that even after 100 years of ploughing are still there. Um, so I think that's been a real bonus. I think what's what's been extremely useful as well is the digitization of records and maps and things like that. So it's possible now to go online to a number of different sources, be it uh, the National Archives in London, the uh, National Library of Scotland has an amazing collection of, of, of digitised trench maps and things like that um, that you can all print off or, or, or save to your phone or things like that before you go and use it to um, to sort of enhance your experience of of visiting the battlefield. Now, I want to ask, I assume there are some, how do you feel about historical reenactors wanting to go to certain battlefields? And again, I don't know if there are, but I assume there are some that want to go to the battlefields where they happen and dig up trenches, etc., and to actually replay that... this. How do you feel about that? Uh, I think uh, personally, I, I think I'm, I'm I'm all in favour of it. I think it's um, I, I think it helps sort of bring stories to life. I think it adds a, a different dimension to it. I mean, there's a very famous group of um, reenactors who were called the Khaki Chums, who um, were out in uh, Belgium in Christmas 1914 and reenacted the you know the Christmas truce that took place out near near Plugstead Wood and and you know lived in conditions similar to what the men did wearing period uniforms and uh, and I think it was fantastic and um, I, I I I'm all in favour if that's what you want to do um, and that's your way of understanding and applying history then then good luck to you I think it's fantastic. Now, what happens, again, I want to, what happens if, let's say I'm a farmer in France and I plough the earth and I find a helmet or a barbed wire, or let's say I find a helmet and maybe a rifle from World War One. what what have, would I have to go to the nearest museum or report this in or should I just keep it myself? I think a lot of uh, farmers um, now, when you, they uncover things like helmets and barbed wire, it's kind of scrap, basically. Mm. I mean, I know that there are many farmers have sort of collected them into barns and that's. So sort of it's thing. not valuable. It's not as valuable as to museums or anything. 
No, I, I mean, I think, you know, the, these are these are items that have been in the ground for, you know, over 100 years and have monetarily have very little value. I think, you know, I think ethically and, uh, and morally that did obviously once belong to a soldier and you don't know whether, you know, how it came to be there. But I think the majority of farmers would probably view it as 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 scrap. It's also a very different situation when they're plowing up munitions and and. Um, uh, explosives and things like that. This is there's a completely different protocol to be followed with it. I mean, many farmers, in fact, on on the battlefields, have actually sort of you know created these very interesting little sort of private museums and things like that in barns where they've collected all the items that they've dug up o- over the years, be it helmets or rifles or barbed wire and things like that. And there's actually some really interesting sites around the battlefields where you can see some incredible artifacts that people have uh, have dug up from. I mean, I've seen things from. Lewis machine guns through to you know um, German helmets and barbed wire pickets and and things like that. But as I said, it, when it comes to explosives, it's a, it's an entirely different. Yeah, I would I would ask: Is explosives still a from World War One still a problem today? Yes. Can they go off still? Yeah, very, yeah very, very much. So. In fact, there was a, there was a and story. How, 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 and you, have you had issues when the explosion explosives going off? Um, I I haven't. Personally, I, I, I did once have to say to uh, someone that I was guiding around the battlefield that perhaps picking up a live hand grenade wasn't a particularly sensible idea um, because you know, a lot of these things are just as dangerous now as they were 100 years ago. In fact, I mean, there was a story in the news literally just about uh, two to three weeks ago of a, uh, a Belgian farmer, uh, wife of a, of a Belgian farmer who was very lucky to be still alive that she was walking behind the uh, tractor with her two sons when they were ploughing the fields and the plough hit a shrapnel shell in the ground which went off and she was hit in the head and the face was shrapnel and uh, thankfully she survived um, what about the sons yeah they, they, they all survived but um you know it's it is very very common and there was an incident uh, it may have been last year or t- a couple of years ago where some workmen were, were killed during road building in belgium when they struck a high explosive shell which which went off um and they actually lost their lives you know tragically from it um what how can you tell if it's a world war one or world war two Explosive. I mean, technology obviously changed or not in these 20 years, but is it easy to tell that, that this is a World War One explosive and this is a World War Two explosive? Uh, I'm sure if you have dealings with them almost sort of on a daily basis, then yes, you could tell the difference. From from, from my point of view, I, I I don't believe that I could sit and look at a, a shell that's come out of the ground and tell you whether it was World War One or World War Two. Um, I could tell you that it's still dangerous, um, and um, you know it's mm. best left the the professionals to deal with. But I'm sure, as I say, there are people who who this is part of the life of farming in on you know, what were the First World War battlefields? They're used to it. And, and the farmers generally just collect the shells up and put them at the corner of the field and leave them for bomb disposal to come and, and get rid of them. And I think they come round. Do you have to be careful to handle these explosives when technology drove like like this? Or do you have to like be steady, steady, steady and then put them to the side if you see um, one? Well, I, I, I wouldn't. I personally, I wouldn't pick. I wouldn't pick one up. But I, I have seen farmers who pick them up, put them on the back of a trailer, and 
you know, carry them across a field to, to put them in the corner. So I think there must be a degree of knowledge that they have. But, you know, as with any of these, these things, it's that they are potentially still just as dangerous now as they were when they were when they were fired 100 years ago. And as I said, you know, we have to see what happened with the say with the farmer's wife literally two weeks ago. Who, who was hit in the head with shrapnel from a, a World War One shrapnel shell to see how dangerous it is. But I mean, it, it is... Um, and it, and it we've is... had kids from World War Two and World War One still playing with these things. If they find one, they don't, don't know what it is and they play with... They play with this and it has done badly in many, many situations. I, I'm sure. I'm sure that's happened on 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 occasions. Absolutely, if, if things are things are found, I, I, I'm sure that there is probably a process of education that takes place in the these areas where fighting were to, to teach children about the dangers of it. But you know, kids will be kids. I'm sure it's uh, and uh, fortunately things happen. I mean, there, there are so many shells that are still recovered. They actually call it the Iron Harvest. Um, it's 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 given a name, and I heard a, a, a remarkable statistic uh, about this. So, so um, explosive ordnance that they find, so shells, hand grenades, that sort of thing, are taken to a, a quarry where they are literally blown up and destroyed. But when gas shells are found, they have to be taken to a laboratory to be decontaminated because they are they are just as dangerous now as they were back in World War One, and they find so many of them that the laboratory um, said that if they were to able to decontaminate, I think it was uh, 15 shells a day, there is a waiting list of 30 years. Um, and of course, that's being added to every year that the, the fields are ploughed, more and more and more munitions come up. I, I stay at... Um, a, a farm near uh, Polkapella in, in Belgium and I've got to know the farmer quite well over the years and he has had years where he's ploughed up anything up to coming onto a tonne of munitions um, out of uh, his fields because the farm was right in the middle of the, the battlefields particularly around 1917 the fighting around Passchendaele and um, even to this day so every year he's ploughing up um, you know, shells, trench mortar rounds, things like that. Mm. And how deep down? Because I imagine the Earth is quite has grown quite quite a lot over the years, and it's been dug either dug down and and maybe and as it comes up today, how far down do we have to dig to find this? Not not very. Um, I mean, I've seen on many occasions. I, I've been walking across farmland, and I've seen items lying on the top of the soil. In fact, I had a conversation um, a couple of years ago with the farmer who farms the uh, fields that are located around a place called Delville Woods down on the Somme. It's um, forever associated with South Africa who, who fought there. And he was telling me, the farmer was saying that he's been plowing the fields for so long now that he can tell by the noise that his plow makes when it hits a shell underground, how many summers it will be before that comes up mm. to, before it comes up to the surface. He said, you know, when, when you've been listening to that noise for 40 years, you, you, you learn very quickly, um, you know, mm. how, how long it's going to take for something to come. But yeah, I mean, it's um, particularly after plowing, if you visit the battlefields after plowing, you, you very often find um, items just lying on the surface. I mean, I've found all sorts of things in the many times that I've, I've visited the battlefields, just lying on footpaths and, and things like that. But aren't they, don't they want to do anything about this? Just get in the way right 
get it right away or are, are they able to do something about this at all like getting this off so it's not a danger anymore or is it something that you just have to be patient about well i i think uh, I, i think you just have to be patient about it i think there's no viable economic reason why you would want to dig up farmland to remove munitions when nature i mean is it is a certain to... danger though isn't it well no, absolutely it, it it is it is a danger but i think it's something very much that the, the the farmers in france and belgium have grown used to it's it's part of being a farmer on on the battlefield and um yes of course there's a risk associated with it and of course i'm sure that all of them would really rather that they didn't have this situation but they do and the sheer quantity and sheer volume of ammunition that was fired during world war one means that that and and of course bearing in mind that so much of the ammunition was faulty so it didn't go off as as it should have done it's inevitable that even a hundred years later you're still going to be finding as much as you did when you've had literally tens maybe hundreds of millions of artillery shells fired so then, in the, yeah that's in that sense to me it would make more sense just get it over with get it may take a while and it may not be usable in the soil but when in my in my point of view it wouldn't make sense just to get it over with get all get all the explosives explosives out of the way and then you don't have to worry about it ever again so to I, me I, it, that makes sense just get it over with and get the explosives out of the way i think the i think the problem comes and say once again it's just the sheer quantity of it that it's just not feasible to to, to excavate on that sort of scale um and th the majority of the land has been reclaimed and is obviously used for agriculture and used for farming without any adverse effects um of, of munitions being there and as i said nature takes its course and you to say you see piles of of shells stacked up at the corner of farmers fields and it's just accepted that i think that's part of the way of life of um of farming on what were historical battlefields. Hmm. Um, have you ever yourself worried when you walk in battlefield like you might work on a landmine yourself or anything, any, any sort of explosive when you walk the battlefield of World War One? Um, I um, it's not something I've particularly worried about. I, I have certainly found munitions myself uh, as i've been walking the battlefields i've seen you know everything from large artillery shells to hand grenades and things and you my view is you leave them where they are and um but no i, I mean i've never been i've never been particularly worried about you know, the potential of, of standing on something and um i, I think i think if you did you probably it would take out the the enjoyment of actually actually visiting them mm. And I think, and I don't think I have any further questions. Thank you so much for coming. And when will the book be available for you? So for the, for, book, for the public, not for you, but for the public. I meant to say. So the the book uh, the 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 book about the the school war memorial is called uh, "Remember Him at the Altar," and that will be published uh, at either the I think the end of this year or January twenty twenty two, and uh, I hope to have the book on Festubert should be out in twenty twenty four. I hope is uh, is is the plan. Do you have any social media or anything you wish me to link in the description description where people might find you or anything else you wish to promote? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. So I obviously I, I run my own podcast as well, which is called the the Footsteps of the Fallen, and uh, I project I release that once a week, and that's reflections on today my thirty years of visiting the the battlefields of, of World War One, and um, I also have a, a website as well, which is uh, com and you can find out a little bit about me, what I'm up to, uh, the things that I do. There's a blog, and it's obviously linked to the podcast, well and my Instagram feed. And, um, and things like that as well. So, um, honestly, yeah. I, I haven't heard anyone use www in a long time. <laughs> well, it's, I'm a bit of a luddite, you see. So I'm, so I'm quite old, and I'm not. I'm. Uh, I, I still. Uh, I still remember when it's where everything was www. Yeah, fair so. Thank so. you so much for coming. This has been well damaged as well, and uh, yeah, we we are available on spotify apple Podcasts, where wherever you might find podcasts we are on instagram under world.h12 you can find us there and we are on youtube as well and world under world.h12 and my name is alan and i guess i'll see you next time thank you for coming thank you very much for having me it's been uh, lovely to talk to you you too thank you alan bye even on a budget Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.